Good evening. Please be seated. Psalm 85 this evening on our journey through the Scriptures on Sunday evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. But if you just get their attention, waving to them, they'll get a Bible into your hands and you can follow along. We try to cover a little territory on Sunday night. And it's a lot easier to keep track of things when you can read along yourself. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. In Psalm 85, we have a psalm of praise to the Lord related to the blessings of restoration. And so this psalm was uh, probably written uh, after some... Uh, expression of God's mercy toward Israel in their history, probably the best uh, guess in terms of what season in Israel's history that this psalm came out of, probably expresses the feelings of the children of Israel toward God after their return to the land of Israel following their Babylonian captivity. And all that they faced As a result of that, and you can read the book of Haggai or the early part of Zechariah to help understand what they were facing upon their return to the land. So he begins by praising the Lord for his uh, forgiveness uh, directed toward them. Lord, you have been favorable to your land, and you have brought back the captivity of Jacob. Lord, thank you for bringing us back to the land that we rightfully forfeited because of our idolatry and our sin, and you have brought us back to it. I can't imagine. I think I've had the privilege of being in Israel a number of times and seeing the beauty of the land. It's like a condensed California, actually. You have a desert down in the south. You have forests up in the north. You have a great valley that runs the length of the land, just like we have in California, the great valley, the big valley. That's the one we live in. (laughs) People talk about, you know, the inside section of California with some kind of disdain. This is a big valley. Bakersfield all the way up to Sacramento or so. But you go to that land and it's got, on the west side, it's got that coast that runs the length of the land just like California does. And I think to myself sometimes when I'm there, what would it have been like, the whole spiritual angle of it too, to forfeit being there because of their sin and then to go into the, uh, the you know, idolatry central in Babylon, to be displaced from Israel, to go to Babylon, how heartbreaking that must have been. Israel's a beautiful, beautiful land. And so he's thankful now that they have come back. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people, and God had forgiven them of their sin in that season of their history, and you have covered all of their sin. He said, you have taken away all your wrath and have turned from the fierceness of your anger. And so he praised the Lord for ceasing to be angry with them with a righteous anger and discipline and wrath against them. And then he begins in verse 4 with a very important word, and that's the word restore. He says, Restore us, O God of our salvation. When they came back, so they have forgiveness. God's anger, his discipline has been lifted off of them. But now he prays for a greater thing to occur in their lives, and that is that God would restore them and, and, uh, it, and do such a work of his mercy in their lives that there would be no trace left of all of the uh, kind of uh, consequences of their former uh, sinful condition or of his anger. Now, when they came back into the land... After that Babylonian captivity, that was not an easy time. There were foreign people living in the whole... They'd taken over the whole country. That's the way there was. The whole land is just beaten down. I mean, it's nothing like the beautiful thing that it was when they left. Their homes are destroyed. It just looks like a wasteland compared to what it once uh, was. And so... This, after this 70 years of neglect or so, they come back into the land. And yes, they were forgiven. They were restored. 
uh, God's anger was lifted off of them, but there were still the consequences of uh, their sin that they had to deal with. And so they're asking to be restored in the relationship. God, we're thankful for your forgiveness. We're thankful that your discipline and your anger isn't on us anymore. But could you restore us back to the relationship that we had with you before all of this happened? And sometimes that is an instantaneous thing. I remember hearing a long time ago the illustration concerning sin, God's forgiveness, consequences of sin, being likened, sin being likened to driving, a, hammering a nail into a board. And God forgives us of our sin. He cleanses us of our sin. He removes the nail out of the board. But there's still the hole. There's still consequences to the sin that sometimes aren't taken away and that we have to then deal with those consequences that are left as a result of the sin. Sometimes that can be an unwanted pregnancy or it can be some kind of an addiction to sin or a job loss or the loss of a very, very significant relationship in our life. There are consequences uh, to sin and God's forgiveness comes, but it doesn't necessarily make all of those things go away. And so what we need to do related to those consequences is to ask what the psalmist is asking for here, and that is even greater mercy upon our lives, that God's mercy would then overwhelm the consequences of our sin and even do what he promises to do, and that is to work them together for our good. And so he's praying for an extra measure of grace related to his life and related to the children of Israel. I remember talking with a man years ago, and I've, I've had this kind of conversation uh, with very, different variations all through the years with lots of people. And he had once had a very, very close, beautiful relationship with the Lord. The Lord just did an incredible miracle in his life, just like he does in our lives. And he frittered away. And he went into just a terrible, terrible, long backslide. And then he came back to the Lord. And he was confident in God's forgiveness. He was thankful that God's discipline had been lifted off of his life. But the intimacy of the relationship that he once had with God, God didn't give that back to him in a day. That wasn't instantly returned to him. It took a while where God let him kind of sit under the consequence of his sin a little bit. And he felt in his circumstance for the reason that would make him rethink any time he'd be tempted to backslide ever again to rethink that. And not just to take for granted that this relationship can be taken for granted and it'll always be kind of off and on and I can have it just click on and be as close and beautiful as I want it to be on a whim coming out of a backslide. And I thought that was tremendous wisdom on his part and and to be able to, or maturity, to be able to look at it in that way. Now here's the point that we want to make here is that if we come back to the Lord out of a season of sin, whether that be years or whether that be hours, and we have to, God does things in a way that there are consequences now that we need to deal with as a result of that, we must never confuse that with His forgiveness or with His love for us. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That forgiveness of sin is instantaneous. When we get right with God again, get back right with him, then the discipline lifts off of our lives. But the fact that God may or may not and sometimes may allow us to have to deal with the consequences for a while, we must never confuse that with thinking that God hasn't forgiven me and I'm still in the doghouse. He is allowing that to happen in that way in our lives in order to do something good in our lives. And one of those things is to make us rethink ever walking away from Him 
again. And so we remember whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And this, so here's this prayer. Yes, we have the forgiveness. Yes, we're out of the doghouse. But now, Lord, restore us, O God, of our salvation and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? This is the relationship, isn't it? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. And when he talks about salvation here, he's not talking about the salvation of an individual soul being saved by putting our faith in Christ, but it's the idea of being delivered from uh, the consequences of uh, unfaithfulness to the Lord, the consequences of backslide, the dispersion uh, out of the land and the captivity and the affliction and the powerlessness and all of the unhappiness and all of those things. And then he moves on in verse 8 and he begins, uh, and it, this is a very, very healthy thing. This is a very mature Christian who writes this uh, psalm here of the sons of Korah because he moves on then to speak of his confidence in the fact that God has not only forgiven but will restore. And he will do that in our lives. So be faithful to do it. I will hear what God the Lord will speak for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints but let them not turn back to folly. And so he's confident in God's grace. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And so God, uh, work and, and let us have that relationship with you in the land and the grace be on display by restoring us again, not only to the land, but the relationship. Mercy and truth have met together Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. And so he's praying that God will find a way for righteousness and peace uh, or mercy and peace there in verse 10 to meet together. And as Christians, we have an absolute confidence in this because of the cross of Jesus Christ and, and what God was able to show there related to the cross of Jesus is to show mercy to sinners without sacrificing his truth, uh, the righteous demands of God towards sinners. And he prays again. These are beautiful poetic uh, phrases that God will make a way for righteousness and peace to kiss each other. That's cute, isn't it? And you try and see righteousness and peace kissing and uh, being uh, reconciled. And so he says, he's praying for that. Lord, we don't want you to become unrighteous in order for us to have peace with you and all, but we want to have peace. Is there a way that you can have righteousness and peace kiss in our, our situation? Of course, today, as somebody has noted, that righteousness and peace are not only not kissing, they're not on speaking terms. And um, the reason that that is the case is because you have to have righteousness before you have peace. And the world that we live in wants peace, but it doesn't want righteousness. It doesn't want peace at that, at that cost. It wants its sin. And uh, so as long as there's a greater longing for unrighteousness, no thirst for righteousness, then peace is going to continue to ebb. It's going to move away and become rarer and rarer. Uh, in our world, and that, of course, is what, what we're seeing uh, around the world today. Spiritually speaking, again, we go back to Calvary. It was at Calvary that the perfect righteous demands of man's sin was met, allowing us to have a peace relationship with God. And so that uh, verse 10, beautiful picture. It's its own sermon related to Jesus. Truth again, verse 11, shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, Lord, uh, yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. And so here we have this beautiful, serious dealing with sin, dealing with the consequences of sin, but the psalmist ha 
ends the psalm rightly, and that is with the absolute confidence that God is going to, by the time he has the final say in my life, no matter what I've done in my past, he's going to have the final say, and it's going to be beautiful, and it's going to be good, and it's going to bring peace, and it's going to bring mercy, and we should have that same confidence uh, in our lives too, and most especially when we're having to kind of clean up or deal with some consequences in our life is a result of sin. In Psalm 86, we have what I would describe as an individual uh, person's cry for mercy. And the writer of the psalm, he refers to himself 35 times in the psalm with the words, I, my, me, your servant. And so what we have in Psalm 86 is a, a psalm or prayer that is not intercession for other people, but it's what we call supplication. And that is when we pray for ourselves. I don't take anything for granted. I think it's important uh, for everybody to know that there's nothing wrong with praying for ourselves. It's the only way you can be sure that anybody's praying for you is to pray for yourselves. Sometimes people think it's, it's carnal to do that or something, to be so self-centered as to pray. Now, the psalmist teaches us that, that it isn't, and, uh, and it's necessary to pray for ourselves, and, uh, and, and uh, it isn't any more selfish to pray for ourselves than it is to ask others to pray for us. And, in fact, it, it honors God to pray for ourselves. Prayer, uh, prayer is an expression of our faith in God. We see a lot of that in the Psalms. And so that's all it is, is I'm expressing faith in God to take care of my uh, individual needs. Concerning praying for ourselves, I like Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, will guard your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. It's interesting to note that as spiritual a man as the Apostle Paul not only prayed for himself, but he then asked other people to pray uh, for him. Romans chapter 15, Paul said, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Oh, terrible carnal Paul. No, we need to pray for ourselves. And then we need to ask people to agree with us in prayer. And then uh, Paul goes on in chapter 15 of Romans, and he gave them his, pr- his prayer request. He said, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. And so this psalm teaches us um, that God is not only interested in uh, the whole wide world. He's not just interested in the international. He's not just interested in the national affairs of life. But he is interested in each and every one of our lives individually cares about. Peter wrote and he said, casting all of your cares on him, speaking of God, because he cares for you. So all, you cast all, that's big things, that's small things. You say, what kind of a thing can I lift up to God? Can I pray for my hamster? Are you concerned about your hamster? If it's of concern to you, If it's important to you, then it's important to him. That's how close he is. That's how big his heart is as a a heavenly father to us. So he cares about the individual. Nothing too big, nothing too small that we can uh, bring uh, to him. Now, the psalmist in what he's facing here, as we'll see in just... Uh, a moment or two, there's a very large group of very, very violent men that are uh, threatening his life. And the psalmist is David. And so he begins with a plea for the Lord to uh, protect him and to preserve him. Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me. 
is interesting. You ever think about how far down God has to bow (laughs) to hear our prayers? Well, it's figurative, isn't it? But it's good to realize God's really willing. I mean, he... Talk about the humility of God. God asks us to be humble. He is a humble. Think about how low he's willing to go to hear my prayers and to be involved in those prayers. And David had a sense of it. Bow down your ear, O Lord, and hear me. For I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. In other words, I'm in this trial, Lord, not because of my own sin. I'm, I, I'm, I'm a man of of faith and holiness at this point in my life. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. So expresses his faith to the Lord. And then he says, Be merciful to me, O God, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. So he cries out to the Lord for mercy in order for God to rejoice his heart. For you, Lord... This is what he knows God to be. You are good. You're ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. That's a great confidence to have, recognizing God that is that to us. This is the one that we pray to. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of trouble, I will call upon you and you will Answer me. And then he begins to uh, speak of before he even gets to what he's going to ask the Lord for in a kind of uh, further detail. Uh, he begins to just meditate upon God and the greatness of God. And, and, and so that he real, this is who he's praying to. Among the gods, there is none like you. There's no God like you, Lord. Nor are there any, nor are there any works like your works. Lord, no one works like you do. Nobody can do the things that you do. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. You're the creator of all the nations of the world and worthy of their praise. For you have done, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And so he stops and he thinks about who it is that he's praying to. The New Testament equivalent for us is in the Lord's Prayer. When God get, Jesus gave this model of prayer to his disciples, long before we ever get to daily bread or the daily needs of our life, the prayer begins, Our Father, which art in heaven. <laughs> now you just do a little old Selah right there when you're praying that. And you think about how big this God is that I'm about to cast my cares on his shoulders. There's nothing too difficult for him. Sometimes if we don't spend a little time in praying for ourselves, in worshiping him or thinking about how great the one is that I'm lifting my needs up to, I can spend a period in prayer, walk away, and view the problem is bigger than my God. So it takes a little time in prayer to think about the greatness of God, and then I see my problem in the light of Him, and then when I get up from prayer, I can leave it with Him. I don't think we've ever been successful in supplication for our individual selves, if we sit down to pray and we get done and we stand up and we take our problem with us, almost always it's an indication that we haven't spent enough time thinking about the greatness of our God that we are entrusting this thing to. And then being able, as a result of that, to say, Lord, I leave it with you. It's not like I can do better with this than, than you can do. And then, beginning in verse 11 here, he wants this whole season in his life, uh, this trial that he's in, the desire that it would take him deeper in his relationship with the Lord. So there's, again, there's great maturity. Of course, it's David, and there's great spiritual maturity in David. So he doesn't pray and say, God, would you just get me out of this thing just as fast as you can? Now, I'm not saying you can't pray that, because I've prayed that. (laughs) And I'm the standard for for how you pray. I'm Peter singing, 
Help me, Lord. That's a legitimate prayer. Nothing wrong with that. But here is this in, in David here. Here he looks at the circumstance. Yes, God, I want you to deal with this. I want you to deliver me. I want you to take care of my enemies. But by the way, while I'm in this situation, if there's something I'm supposed to learn about you, something I'm supposed to grow, it's, this is supposed to be like a growth experience for me, then I want that to happen. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's a good thing to unite a heart, mind, soul, and strength around, and that is the fear of the Lord. It's the only safe place to unite our lives around. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. He remembers God's past deliverances in his life. And then he gets now to the specific need of his life. O God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set you before their eyes. And so he describes his enemies. They're proud, they're violent, and they're godless. That's a very bad combination to have uh, in an enemy. But then notice what he says in verse 15. But you, O Lord, in contrast to them, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Oh, turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and have comforted me. And so, Lord, I want you to deliver me. And would you give me a sign that you're going to do that or deliver me in such a way that it's a sign to my enemies that you are my God and they went up against the wrong guy and the wrong God as a result of, uh, of what it is that they were uh, attempting to do. So, in the, so this beautiful psalm, Psalm 86, that is such a great encouragement to us of God's individual concern for each and every one of us. And that's something I think it's wonderful to think about tonight. The privacy of your own heart. That God loves me. God is concerned for me. My life is important to Him. What is important to me is important to Him. That's the kind of God that I know and the kind of God that I'm serving. Those are important things for us to realize about God and to realize about ourselves. It can certainly transform a Christian life, those realizations. And then in Psalm 87, we have a beautiful psalm or ode, really, to the beauty of Zion or to the beauty of Jerusalem. So it is a celebration of Jerusalem and uh, as being God's uh, specially chosen city and ultimately the center of the whole world that uh, Jesus is going to rule from uh, during the thousand-year reign of Christ and all the nations of the world uh, will go there. And so he begins this with his description of the city. His, his foundation, speaking of Jerusalem, is in the holy mountains. And so God set the foundation. He chose the location for Jerusalem. It's kind of a goofy old location for the city that you're going to make the city of the whole wide world and the, and the city of the millennial period or the thousand-year reign of Christ is not on any famous rivers or wasn't on any famous trade routes. It was it just off in this kind of goofy old place and situated on the mountains as the psalmist uh, brings out here. And, and uh, Jerusalem is situated on a series of mountains, Mount Zion, uh, Mount of Olives, Mount Scopus, seven mounts or seven hills and all that it is set upon. And then he speaks of the Lord's love for Jerusalem. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. In other words, God loves Jerusalem more than all of the other cities or towns in the land of Israel. And then he begins uh, to speak of the glorious future 
of the city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has a ter- Jerusalem's past is a tremendous past, isn't it? Sometimes, for instance, if you do take a trip to Israel and you visit Jerusalem, we think so much about its past. But the, the greatest part of history, the greatest history for Jerusalem is yet in its future because Jesus is going to come there at his second coming. He will establish his reign and, and, and reign there for a thousand years. And so he says, glorious things are spoken of you. O city of God, and I will make mention of Rahab, that's an Old Testament uh, term for Egypt and Babylon, to those who know me, behold Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia, this one was born there. And so the Lord speaking of the future of Jerusalem, it'll be a time where not only the Jews will celebrate the beauty and the spiritual significance of Jerusalem, but so will the Gentile nations, and so will the nations that have historically been the greatest enemies to Israel. That's what he lists here. Egypt, Babylon, uh, the Philistines, Tyre, Ethiopia. And yet during that thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, when it talks about Jesus, uh, the Lord talks about at the end of verse 4, this one was born there. He is going to give the Gentile nations and the Gentile people who long to come to Jerusalem because Jesus reigns there, he will kind of give an edict that will allow them to be citizens with all of the same rights as the Jews to Jerusalem and to Israel. And of Zion, it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her, and, and that the, the Father will through the Son, the Lord will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there, Selah. And so God is going to honor the desires of anyone that wants to come to Jerusalem during that thousand-year reign, the sole great attraction of Jerusalem at that time will be Jesus himself and to come close to the one who produces this beautiful reign all around the world, this beautiful uh, ruling that he does around the world, and people will come, and whether Jew or Gentile, the Lord will give them every privilege that is given to one who longs and desires, uh, seeks after God. Both the singers and the players, verse 7, on instruments say, all my springs are in you. And so, beautiful song uh, related to Jerusalem and, uh, and to realize and to remember that the greatest days for Jerusalem are yet in the future. You go to Israel and you go to Jerusalem and it's wow and wow and wow and wow and pictures and ooh and ooh and all of that is just absolutely great. Jesus got crucified there. Jesus was rejected by his own people. And by the religious leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem. And from the vantage point of heaven, that shame hangs over the city. But Psalm 87 brings out the grace of God and that God is going to allow Jerusalem a do-over. You ever needed a do-over in life or a do-over on a free throw or something in athletics or whatever? Let me do it again. I think I can make it the second time because I missed so terribly the first time. And so it's beautiful to think about God as being the God of second chances, not only concerning individuals, but He's a God of second chances related to the city of Jerusalem. And when Jesus rules there the next time, there will be no rejection of him. There will be no second crucifixion. And there will be, again, no rejection of him as the promised Messiah of, of the world. And Jerusalem will be what God always intended it to be. 
because he never intended that first rejection to ever occur. Jerusalem's best days are ahead of her, and we will one day see it with our own eyes. And then in Psalm 88, um, or if there are any of you, I won't ask for a show of hands, if there are any of you dealing with depression tonight, you might just check out for a moment here with this psalm. This psalm is the darkest, saddest psalm of all 150 of the psalms. I call it the pit psalm. I mean, this psalmist is he's like those uh, Chilean coal miners way, way down <laughs> into the pit of the circumstance that he's in. And so this is a very, very uh, uh, sad psalm. And the psalmist begins by uh, describing uh, the deep trial that he's in and the despair. Now, let me just say this to relieve, uh, release uh, all of the obvious tension that I've built into the room. Is that there's a reason for the psalm being this way. It's intended to, to teach us a lesson. So he says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. So I don't know the last time you've done that, but when you do that, you're in a deep trial. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. We would say, God, I'm as good as dead. I'm counted with those who go down to the pit, the grave. I'm like a man who has no strength, adrift from the dead. I'm just a hair's breath away from death, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. Oh, let me take a couple of deep breaths. That's a tough place that he's in. Really tough place. He said, you've laid me in the lowest pit. And so the psalmist believes on top of all the troubles that he's having, if it couldn't be any worse, he believes that God has done this to him. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness and in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You just hit me one wave after another, after another. I can't even catch my breath. Say, La, take a moment and think about that. <laughs> Do I have to? Yes. Verse 8. On top of that, God, you've put away all of my acquaintances far from me. You've made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. You've made me like a leper to all of my family and my friends. I've been abandoned by all of them. No one wants anything to do with me. And as a result, my eye wastes away, speaking of crying, because of affliction. I have no comfort from God or from man. And then he... In, in, uh, he, he begins to cry out to the Lord that the Lord would spare his life. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched my hands out to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Lord, if you let me die, what good is that going to do for you? And in the Almost all of the understanding that we have of life after death is revelation in the New Testament. They had a very limited revelation of what happens after death in the Old Testament. And so you see things like this where there's the idea that they go into the grave, there's no life on the other side of it, or it's very mysterious, and all praise will be uh, dropped, no praise will be lifted up to the Lord. We know that to be absent, as a Christian, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But this was his understanding. So, Lord, what's the use in me dying? I can praise you while I'm alive. I can't praise you when I'm dead. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? 
Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Lord, if, if you let me die, then all of this praise and testimony concerning you, all of that is going to be lost. And then in verses 13 and 14, he asks, actually verses 13 through 18, the end of the psalm, he asks the big question, why? But you, to you, O Lord, I have, but to you I have cried out, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you, Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? Why do you, why do you have to feel so distant to me in the middle of, of this trial. I've been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your tears. I'm distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. So life has been hard for him for a long time. Your tears have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. Lord, why have you removed all of my loved ones and my friends from me? And the point, at this point, he doesn't expect God to deliver him. He's, he looks at this, and in this trial, he says, this is where I die. I don't expect God to deliver me from this trial. All I want from God is to know why. That's just a little thing I want. I don't believe I'm going to get anything more than that from him. No deliverance, no help, no any of this. I just want to know why he's allowed this to happen to me. Now, the psalm is an important one, I think, on a couple of different levels. If, you've ever, uh, if you ever need to read a psalm to be reassured that someone has it harder than you, then this is a good psalm. I mean, this guy's so low, he can perk anybody up. Does anybody have life? Is, is, for anyone, is life harder for them than for me? Yes, turn to Psalm 88. Meet the psalmist there. If you're alive and you're breathing, you've got it better than this guy felt like he had. Now, I don't think that anybody can ever read this psalm, anyone who's in difficulty, and ever say to themselves, nobody knows how I feel. This psalmist knows how you feel, and God knows how you feel. Now, most of these psalms, they begin with a psalmist in this kind of fear. He's in this kind of despair. He's in this kind of darkness, and he doesn't understand what's going on. But the longer he talks with God and the longer he prays, he regains perspective, and then he ends the psalm with this great burst of faith and confidence and praise lifted up to the Lord. That's how most of the psalms go because that's how most of life is. But it's not always like that. That doesn't happen here. The psalm ends without any hope. It ends without any resolution. And in fact, the only spark, the only spark of light in the whole psalm is in verse 1, and it gets darker and darker and darker the longer he goes until it finally ends appropriately enough with the final word of verse 18 being darkness. While he writes this, he has no relief at all from what he finds himself in the middle of. Now, we know that the the psalmist isn't faithless. And the reason that we know he isn't faithless, that he hasn't lost his faith in God, despite all of the troubles that are going on in his life, is because he's still praying. And again, prayer is an expression of faith in God. No matter how weak the prayer is, no matter how misguided the prayer might be, it is still an expression of faith in God. So faith is still alive in this man, and we see it by virtue of his prayer. And so how in the world does a person maintain faith in the midst of a trial this deep? And I think there's only one answer, and the answer is 
the one that Jesus gave to Peter just before he headed into the deepest, darkest trial of his life, and that is denying Jesus and denying even knowing him three times on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus told Peter, this is what you're going to do. And then he told Peter, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Peter failed, but his faith didn't fail. And you know why Peter's faith didn't fail? Because Jesus interceded for him. I have prayed for you. There will be times in each of our lives as Christians when the trial, for most of us anyway, when the trial will become so deep and so great that by the time we get to the other side of it, we won't be able to take any credit for it or any glory for our faith. We will realize, I got through that solely because Jesus was praying for me and praying that my faith would not fail. I don't know that there's anything that is more encouraging to me in all of the Bible, any one single thing, than the realization that Jesus is praying for me right now. As the writer of the book of Hebrews says, He ever lives to make intercession for us. Do you realize He is interceding for you personally right now? and with an intimacy of knowledge of you that even you don't possess concerning yourself. Because we don't know ourselves very well, and we certainly don't know what Monday is going to bring, or Tuesday, or Wednesday, and He does, and He prays for our faith accordingly. He never ceases to pray for us. And when He prays for us, again, the book of Hebrews brings it out, the one who is praying for us is one who is fully sympathetic and understanding of all that we are facing because he faced all of it and more in his incarnation. So he knows how to pray like nobody else knows how to pray. Wherever you are right now in your life, in your situation, your walk with God, your needs, Jesus is praying for you right now. And the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is too. I don't think any of us has any idea how much we owe to the intercession of Jesus Christ related to our lives. I don't think that we need to know, but I think... We all realize that we owe an awful lot to his intercession. We notice, too, that the author of the psalm is a man by the name of Heman the Ezraite. And uh, we learn from 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31, that he was a contemporary of King Solomon. He was a high-ranking official and was famous in his day for wisdom. So God had given a supernatural gift of wisdom to this man that was so great that it was only second to the wisdom that he had given to Solomon, the wisest man in history apart from the Lord. And so he was a godly man. He was a man who was given a position of great influence among uh, God's people, a great influence for God, uh, in, in their midst, and he had that position at the peak of Israel's uh, history and influence in the world. In, in simple terms concerning this man, he was a servant of God. He was a minister. So we, sometimes we think of a minister, we think automatically pastor. That's the minister. But the word minister just means servant. So he's just a servant of the Lord. It's like all of us are servants of the Lord. There's an old saying concerning Christian service that goes like this. He who would be used much must suffer much. And I would guess that there are exceptions to that saying, but I would guess that the exceptions are relatively few. Think about the psalm that Joseph would have written in the Old Testament while he was in that Egyptian prison before the light finally went on 
and he saw the big picture of what God was doing. He could have written Psalm 88. I think about the Apostle Paul, what he wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians. He said in chapter 12 of that book, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with God three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast, Paul said, in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And if you're a strong person, strong personality, strong will, strong, 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 and God has called you into His service, Since his strength is made perfect in weakness, you're going to find the process on the way to get to that place that when people look at your life, they give him all the glory and not you. That can be a difficult process. I say go through it 100%, but to realize that is what lies in front of you. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul wrote, and he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, our crushing trials, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. I don't think that the Apostle Peter would have ever become the apostle, the man, the servant of God that he became. He would have never become the beloved apostle that he is without those bitter tears that he wept in those dark days between the time of his betrayal and Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He could have written Psalm 88 during those three days before he saw the great thing that God was really up to. I think of a true story concerning G. Campbell Morgan, one of the greatest Bible teachers in the history of Christianity, English pastor in London. And the true story is told by him that one Sunday he was away from his pulpit in London in another city, went to church in that city, kind of quietly and anonymously slipped in with his wife. And as he sat in that place and listened to the ministry of the Word on that, that Sunday, there was this young, dynamic pastor that was teaching there. And as they exited the church, Campbell Morgan just fully gushed with praise concerning that what he had witnessed in that young pastor. And his wife just quietly said, he'll be better when he suffered. Campbell Morgan wrote that later on, years later, when he sat under the ministry of the Word through that same man, and he said, and so he was. So he was. And many of God's servants hit a season in our lives when this is the only kind of psalm we would pen from it. But it's important to remember that it rarely 
ends there. That's rarely the end of the story concerning our life and our ministry. Usually there's a long season of fruitfulness and productivity on the other side of a Psalm 88. There certainly was for this psalmist, as we see in the historical record of the book. And in the meantime, we can be comforted mightily by the knowledge that Jesus is praying for us and he will never forsake us. And to stay faithful to God's calling until the end. And it is likely that later on you will have a better understanding of what that season is all about. The problem with the psalmist here, and we'll see it again in Psalm 89 that he deals with, is short-sightedness. He cannot see beyond his current chapter in his life. But there is another chapter to his life. But this is all that he can see at the moment. And that's why Jesus said, If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he didn't mumble when he said it. And he didn't apologize when he said it. That is the level of commitment that he demands of us in order to become his disciple, in order to go where he goes in this world and to be like him in this world. And the reason that Jesus calls for that kind of a commitment of each and every one of us is it is only that kind of commitment that will ride out a season like this and not quit before God is able to tell the rest of the story and reveal the truly great thing that he is up to. Our lives are blood-bought. They do not belong to us anymore. They belong to Him to spend in any way He chooses to spend them. And He'll always spend our lives and use our lives wisely. But it is not ours to jump in and jump out of this relationship based upon the circumstance. It only mars the unveiling of the beautiful thing that he is up to. And it's that commitment to the Lord in that way that keeps us in the saddle long enough to realize that Psalm 88 was just a part of my life, a necessary part of my life for the good thing that the Lord was preparing me for. And what is true of the psalmist in Psalm 88 is true of each and every one of our lives as well. Very often it's true. I don't say it's always true. But very often it's true. The person who wants to be used much must suffer much. And this psalm helps us, to, and the lesson from it, to maintain perspective in the middle of such a season. Let's stand together this evening. And we'll pray as we close. Well, each one of these psalms is so, I mean, they're so rich and they're so beautiful. I mean, the lessons that are found in them and the diversity of things and, and to think that the, all the things that we go through today, God's people have been going through forever. We're not an oddball. We're not, you know, crazy or, or, you know, God hasn't forgotten about us. And these beautiful psalms that bring perspective in so many different ways and then insert just the right piece of wisdom in our lives when we find ourselves in that very same place. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these psalms. And we just pray even as we began that our time in your word tonight would be used by you 
to bring exhortation and edification and comfort to our hearts and to our relationship with you and to our service uh, to you, Lord. And we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you that you listen to all manner of prayers. You allow us to say all manner of things to you in our ignorance so often, and yet it blesses you and you listen and you care about all of it. We thank you tonight that you care for us. And we thank you, Lord, that our lives are in your hands and we acknowledge tonight with the confidence of most of the Psalms when they end that you are doing a great thing. Thank you, Lord, for the meaning and the purpose and the beauty that you have brought to our lives and our relationship with you and through our service to you. We envy no man or woman in this world that does not know you. Thank you, Lord, for the life that we get to live, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, There are going to be pastors and others up in front of me.